Good morning, Mission View. We're going to be looking at one verse, Hebrews 11:22. I will warn you, though, we will get to that verse at the very end of the message. So you're probably wondering how we're going to get there. You'll see. When my kids were in school, they were given creative writing assignments where they had to write the story of their life. Uh, maybe you experienced that yourself. Um, maybe your child has experienced that. But we went through the archives of the Marshall books, and this is the life of Sarah Lenae Marshall. It's, uh, let's see, we look inside, copyright 1999 by Marshall Publishing. I didn't know that existed. Uh, North Canton, Ohio. We live in Uniontown. Where she got North Canton at that time, I don't know. But then on the first page is an acknowledgement page. It says this, first, I would like to thank God for the wonderful life he has given me. That's pretty good. Next, I would like to thank my brothers, Josh and Phil, because they are a part of my life. My mom and dad, too. I'm glad she threw us in there. <laughs> so uh, Sarah proceeds to tell her story that in 1988 she was born, and what happens is she kind of includes a picture and a penny from that year. So I thought I'd let you see a little bit of her story. Watch this. It's only for a moment you were mine to hold The plans that heaven has for you will all too soon unfold So many different prayers I'll pray for all that you might do But most of all I want to know you're walking in the truth and if I never told you, I want you to know That as I watch you grow I pray that God would fill your heart with dreams Now I share a little bit of Sarah's story because I believe that Sarah's book is symbolic of the book that each of us have to write. I get it that Sarah could have been raised in a different environment. She could have been raised by, by abusive parents. She could have been raised by a single mom. She could have been raised in a different culture where she would have been at risk to be sold into the sex slavery. But thankfully, that wasn't the case. You see, as adults, we have the beautiful, this is the beautiful thing about God is that in his grace, he allows us to see our story developed and we have a part of it. You see, we own our own stories. Each chapter, we get a chance to write. There's things outside of our control, but there are a lot of decisions that we make. And one of the most vital decisions I know my daughter made, I know that I made, my family's made, is when we came to faith in Christ. And when I came to faith in Christ, when you came to faith in Christ, everything began to change. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.17 this truth. If anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old is what? Gone. The old is gone, but the new has come. Friends, this is the beauty about our story because it's a story of redemption. 
Now, I know that there are chapters in our life that are out of our control. There are things that happen to us that we just can't do anything about. I don't know if you know this, but in the last six years, my daughter and son-in-law have had the chapter called infertility in their life. For six years, they have been trying to have a child, and that's not been possible. So the chapter that has been recent for them has been infertility, begging and pleading before God. Some of you understand what that is all about. Last week, I shared that 74 million women, or about 11.9% of women, struggle with infertility. Please know that if that's what you're going through, we understand that. We understand begging and pleading and, and asking God to do something beautiful. I know some people have moved from, to the next chapter where you're calling it adoption. And you're finding beauty in the fact that you can adopt. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, this Christmas, my wife and I got something special. We got a present from my daughter and son-in-law. And it was this little box here. And in this is a little poem. And as we opened this on Christmas morning, we started to read it, and I could barely get through it. I'll try to today. It says, I do not have a face to see or put inside a frame. I don't have soft cheeks to kiss. I don't have yet a name. You can't hold my tiny hands nor whisper in my ear. It's till, still too soon to sing a song or cuddle me so near. But all that will change come August and not a moment too soon. I'm your new grand, <laughs> grandson or granddaughter. And I can't wait to meet you. And all I ask between now and then is your patience while I grow. I promise it'll be worth the wait because all the love will know. That's awesome. Obviously, God, I don't understand why some he hears prayers and some he moves people to die. I don't understand that. But I'm thankful that this is a new chapter in my daughter and son-in-law's life. And that's a beautiful thing. And believe me, it's a new chapter in my life and as well as Granny. Um, so <laughs> she's going to want to be called Granny, by the way. So yeah, you can do that. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. What chapter is before you? What chapter in your life is right before you right now? Though you may have all kinds of circumstances that are outside of your control, you do decide the attitude by which you face that situation. You see, we choose to trust God. We choose to do that. We choose to how to react in the midst of adversity. We choose to serve others when others don't deserve to be served. We choose to humble ourselves in the midst of an incredibly proud and arrogant world. We choose to forgive other people instead of retaliate. These are all choices, and these are all part of the chapters of our lives that we get to write. So how is your story being written? Today we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. And Joseph is one of 12 boys 
he, it was easy for him to get lost in the mix with 12 kids in the family, actually 12 boys and a, and a daughter in there as well. And so it was easy for him to get lost in the mix, and yet he trusted God in such a profound ways that God rose him up and allowed him to become the second most powerful person in the world in Egypt. And we're going to take a look at that story here in a minute. Now, personally, Joseph is one of my favorite Bible characters outside of Christ because there's really no bad thing that Joseph does. He doesn't have any stupid moves. Uh, there's all the other people that we've looked at. We see like things that they do and we're like, why would you do that? But Joseph is a guy I want to emulate in my life. Now, I've already messed it up because I have plenty of stupid moves and stupid things I've done. But it's something, it's someone that I can learn from. I think we can all learn from. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the different chapters of his life. It won't be exhaustive because we're looking really at, the, at 13 of the last 14 chapters of Genesis. And so we're going to be just giving a summary of it. So I would encourage you to read those last 14 chapters of Genesis so that you can see how these chapters develop yourself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, help us to understand what your word has to say to us, encourage our hearts, and help us in the different chapters that we see in Joseph's life, help us to see what you want to develop in our life. And we pray that we would apply your word in that way, in Christ's name, amen. Well, the first chapter is called The Family Dysfunction. Now, I don't know how many, well, I'm not even going to raise your hand, but some of you could raise your hand. Yeah, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I know what all of that is about. Well, this is exactly what Joseph grew up in. Now, Joseph was a 17-year-old optimistic dreamer. By God's sovereign plan, he gave Joseph dreams about the future which were fine in and of themselves, but Joseph, being 17 years old, didn't really have a filter in which he would just kind of figure out how this would be perceived by his brothers and his family. Now, he had several dreams. The first dream was that he it represented him and his brothers, and they were sheaves, and that the brother sheaves were all bowing, sheaves of wheat were all bowing down to him. Now, isn't that a great vision? All my brothers bowing down to me. And then the second dream was the sun and the moon representing mom and dad. And 11 stars were, guess what? Bowing down to me. Hey, guys, listen to this. These are the cool dreams I had. Isn't this awesome? Now, the, the mother and father, or dad is like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of questioning this. But, you know, I'm, we're, I'll, just, I'll just store it in the back of my mind. And in my heart. Now the brothers, oh, they loathed. They loathed Joseph. They thought that he was an arrogant person. And they didn't like the fact that he was already the favorite child. Is there anybody here that you know for certain you were the favorite child in your family? Yes, I know, Peanut. You definitely were a favorite child. So my, ch my children, there were no favorites at all with my three kids at all. So, no, my daughter disagrees with that, but that's okay. So Joseph was obviously the favorite. He was the firstborn of, of Jacob's true love, Rachel, and who had now deceased. And he was, Jacob so loved Joseph that he gave him a coat of many colors to symbolize that he was a special child. 
Now, it didn't help that all this existed and it created an immense jealousy amongst the other kids. There was an incredible dysfunction in this blended family. You had 12 boys. You had one daughter. You had identity issues. You had bitterness. You had jealousy. You had harsh words. You had resentment within this. Now, as the story unfolds, the drama unfolds, what we have here is a plot by the brothers to get rid of Joseph. They were actually going to kill him, but Reuben stepped in and said, no, 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 we can't do that. We can't kill the boy. So what they did is they, they took the robe off, they slit an animal and put blood upon it, they put him in a pit and then sold him to some uh, Ishmaelite bottom feeders. And so he is sold, and they contrive a story that they would go and talk to the father and say, a vicious animal is attacked. Is this your son's robe? And yes, it is. Now, I can't think of a, 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 a more wretched lie, a crueler lie that you could perpetuate than this to tell a father that his son, his 17-year-old boy, is dead. The deepest nightmare of any parent is to bury their child, and in this case, there was no body, so it was bearing the memory of a 17-year-old son. Now, we're not told in the scripture how Joseph reacted to this. We're given no indication what he thought. But I would imagine if I was found myself in captivity, now being sold as a slave, I would be thinking, well, why would my brothers do this to me? I would think, am I going to die? Will I ever see my family again? Now, from my experience, what this does is it often creates a deep-seated bitterness when evil things happen to us, which in turn affects how we respond to other people in life. Some of us have had some horrendous things that have happened in our life, and whether we realize it or not, it affects the way that we act towards other people in our circumstances. But what's interesting here is that this doesn't seem to affect Joseph. He has a grid by which he filters everything through, and this is like Teflon, and it seems to go off of him. So here's the first faith principle I believe Joseph was operating by that I think you and I need to operate by. We're gonna give, I'm going to give you five. If you take anything down, take down the five faith principles. Number one, faith trusts God when things are falling apart. Faith trusts God when things are falling apart. Church, we are instructed this in Hebrews. It says this, see to it. That no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by it, many become defiled. See, God says that knowing how life is. He knows that life is difficult. He knows that there's a lot of things that happen to us in life. And he says, let no root of bitterness arise. Have you allowed your horrible circumstances to make you a bitter person? Do you find yourself angrier than you are joyful and fulfilled? See, the only way that we get rid of bitterness is to entrust our circumstances to God and to seek out reconciliation when we are able to do so. So that's the first chapter of Joseph's life. The second chapter would be entitled Force Slavery. 
What we know is that these Ishmaelites sold him, Joseph, to a guy named Potiphar. He was an Egyptian. He was a leader in the government. He's high up in, in Egypt, and he is in his home. Now, what's amazing is that even though Joseph no longer has freedom to go where he wants to go and do what he wants to do, he has a different approach in life here. And the approach is, I'm going to do everything for God. And so he weds together this idea of leadership and hard work and proper boundaries driven by his love and his convictions for God. We're told in Genesis 39 verse 2 that God prospered Joseph because of his heart. See, the boundaries that we see for Joseph is what happened in his scenario. See, he rose up because of his hard work and his integrity. Potiphar put him in charge of everything in his house. He became the head slave very quickly. He says, you have control over everything. And so he put a lot of trust into a Hebrew slave. But then all of a sudden, there's Miss Potiphar. Miss Potiphar comes around and she's looking at this handsome, chisel, 17-year-old boy. And she says come here. And she starts making sexual advances to him. You might call this the first episode of Desperate Housewives Egyptian style. I suppose it's possible that Mrs. Potiphar was just a homely looking woman and that she was easy to resist. But most likely being of royalty and having the best of everything, that probably wasn't the case. Now, if you put yourself in Joseph's situation, shoot, he's away from home. He doesn't know anybody around. It would be really easy for him to carry out this little fantasy that was happening and unfolding and making itself available right before him. But notice this. Notice that it is the deep conviction of God that prevents him from doing that. When Potiphar, Miss Potiphar begs him to go to bed with her, he says this, how then could I do such a wicked thing? The implication is how could I do a wicked thing against your husband who's entrusted me? And then he says, and sin against God. See, it was a moral conviction that drove him as a young 17-year-old man. Oh, that we would have the moral conviction that Joseph had as men in our church. Now, because of the humiliation, we know the story. Some of you know the story that Miss Potiphar makes up a lie and told Potiphar that the slave tried to make sport of her. See, I have his coat that he ran off because she had propositioned him and she took the coat. But he doesn't know that. He says, no, look, he left it behind. He was trying to take advantage of me. And so Potiphar has him thrown in jail. Now, I think this is just my belief. I think that Potiphar knew his wife's character because he could have had that Hebrew slave killed right there instantaneously. If it was true that he was making sport of his wife, he would have had her, him executed right there. But it was clear that Joseph's character was far greater than the character of his own wife. So he threw him in jail to save face. Needless to say, this was a profound injustice. Joseph did and said everything right, and yet everything was going wrong. 
it would have been easy for Joseph just to cry out, foul to God. But that's not what Joseph did. See, what we learn here is we see a man who kept his integrity and did not fall into immorality. See, this takes us to another faith principle. There's the second one. Faith principle number two. Faith knows when to flee. Now, men, this is going to be an application. It applies to all of us, but I'm going to especially make it to us as men. 2 Timothy 2.22 says this. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, men, there are two simple steps that we learn from Joseph that we need to apply to our own life. Number one, we have to have a deep love for God. Number two, we have, a, we have to have a willingness to run. And let me tell you, if the first isn't there, the second won't happen. It's not as likely for it to happen. If we are not driven by conviction, if we're not driven by a love for God because of us walking with God, we're not going to have the fortitude to run when we need to run. See, the first is the greatest passion that we should have. So we move on to the third chapter of Joseph's life. It's called doing time. So he's thrown into jail. Again, one bad thing after another, you would start thinking that Joseph is getting pretty ticked off at God and the circumstances, and I keep doing what's right, and I go down further and further and further. The trajectory of his life didn't seem like it was going in the right direction. But what we're told in Genesis 39, 21 is this. The Lord was with Joseph God showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And if you read the passage, it's so cool because Joseph is put in charge of the entire prison. All the, slave, all the other people in, in prison are under his control. It's almost as if God is trying to prepare Joseph to be a leader in a different function. I think this is Joseph's wax on, wax off moment. Do you know what I mean? If you don't know that reference, go watch Karate Kid number one, and you'll find out. So he's preparing him for leading a nation. And so he, we see him in jail, and he's just faithful in this prison. Now, one opportunity he had to serve was that there was somebody that came up with a dream, actually two people, and they needed someone to interpret now he interprets the dream of the cupbearer and the bread and the baker. It was favorable for the cupbearer, but not so favorable for the, for the baker. But for the cupbearer, he says, you're going to be restored to your position. Remember me. Remember me when you're back in that place of restored royalty. Would you please remember me? And of course, that doesn't happen, at least right away. See, Joseph continue to sit in that prison for two more years. Two more years. That's a long time. And it's obvious that there was a broken promise because the cupbearer said, yeah, yeah, I'll remember you. And he doesn't. See, in my experiences, broken promises lead to despair and distrust. See, we get to the place where we just don't trust people. We don't trust love, as the video talked about earlier. We become skeptical. 
Sometimes we do that even with the church. I think this is an obstacle that any church, and I think Mission View is not exempt from it, that those that come in, all of us have had a negative experience from a church. And I don't know what that experience is. Our leaders don't necessarily know what it is. But you carry it in with you, and you measure everything by that negative experience. And so it almost puts us in a no-win situation. You were in a church where the pastor ran off with the secretary, and you're thinking, is Steve going to do that? You, you come from a church where the leaders couldn't make any hard decisions, and you think to yourself, is that going to be true of the elders? You come from a church where nepotism was in play or financial indiscretion was all about that ministry or there was doctrinal impurities or there was pride in the leadership and the list goes on and on and on. And we measure the church by this and we find ourselves becoming distrusting and in despair because of these negative experiences. I think we can learn something from Joseph. See, Joseph could he could have done the same thing, but he doesn't do it. Here's why. He didn't have his eyes on the pe imperfect people around him. He had his eyes on the perfect God who created him. He knew God was the only one that would not fail him. He knew that. Friends, I will fail you. Look at the guy next to you. They will fail you as well. He wants us to keep our eyes on him. We're, here's our third faith principle. The faith principle is to seek to serve others. But we can only do this if we keep our eyes on God. We are to seek to serve others, but we can only do this if we keep our eyes on God. Galatians 6 tells this, So then, as we have opportunity as the church... Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of God. Know that we can only do this if we have our focal point on God. That's what we learned from Joseph. Let's move to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is what I call humbly exalted. We see the tide turning a little bit with Joseph. Pharaoh has a dream. He can't find anyone to interpret the dream. The cupbearer says, hey, man, I was doing time in the joint, and there was this guy there that just interpreted my dream perfectly. You know what? Why don't we call him up out of prison, and maybe he can do the same for you. So he gets a clean shave. He gets a bath. He gets clean clothes, and he comes before Pharaoh. And... Pharaoh says, I have this dream. Can you give me the interpretation of the dream? And Joseph, to his surprise, says, I, I, I can't do it. But, but the God that I serve, he will answer your dream. He will give the interpretation. So immediately Joseph sets the stage that it's not about him. It's about the God that he serves. And so he gives him the dream and he answers it perfectly. And he says, listen, you're going to have seven years of abundance. And this is going to be bumper crops. But then you're going to, it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And those seven years of famine are going to eat up the seven years of abundance. And so then he interjects his own wisdom and he says, here's my advice to Pharaoh pretty bold statement. Pharaoh, 
Look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance and then put it into storage. And so Pharaoh says, you know what? I can think of nobody that's wiser than you. And right there on the spot, he takes a guy who was moments before in jail, puts him in an exalted position as, in a sense, the prime minister of Egypt, the second most powerful person in the world at that time, at the age of 30. Now, I got to admit, that much power could seduce an individual. It could cause a person to compromise really, really quick. But that's not what happens with Joseph. No corruption is found in him. In fact, what we see in Joseph's life is that all he does is he exalts God. He exalts God in his life. Before the seven, years of, uh, the, the seven years of abundance are over, he has two children. And guess what he names them? He names them... He names them Manasseh and Ephraim. The word Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardships. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of affliction. Everything that Joseph did, even in having his children, it's God, it's God, it's God, it's God. Here's our faith principle. Faith will make known. It will exalt God in you. It will make known, it will exalt God in you. Matthew 23, Jesus tells us, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Church, God will exalt us as he sees fit. He will do that individually. He will do that as a church. That's up to him. But what I know is that we need to exalt him. We need to exalt his righteousness within our life personally. That's our job. Some of us want to advance ourselves. Some of us want to uh, promote ourselves. And this is something that God is not interested in blessing. But what God does bless is when we exalt God in our life. That should be our number one objective in all that we do. I'm not trying to get a promotion. I'm trying to exalt God. I'm not trying to kiss up to my boss. I'm trying to exalt God. I'm not trying to win over my spouse. I'm trying to exalt God. But guess what? When we exalt God, we will win over our spouse. When we exalt God, we will win over the boss. Unless the boss is so blind. That's our job. We move on to the last chapter. The last chapter is this. This is the family reunion. And you find this in Genesis 45. And so what we see is the fulfillment of the dreams. Now this is like 25 years later. And all of a sudden Joseph's family is in, in need of food. Because it's during the time of the famine. And so we see that the sheaves are coming to bow down. We're seeing that the stars bow down before Joseph. God is perfect in his prophecy and what he had given him. And so when he, through a long course of events, Joseph finally reveals his identity and he says to his brothers, I'm Joseph. He says, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold in Egypt. And now do not be distressed 
or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Do you hear the heart? He says, for God sent me before you to preserve your life. See, notice what Joseph has. Joseph has the big picture at this point in his life. And he doesn't have on his heart to retaliate. In fact, Joseph turns the other cheek, just as Jesus has told us to do. Joseph shows kindness even though evil was given to him. Romans were told that we should heap burning coals upon people's head. I used to think that's a way that we would give vengeance until I studied it. And I realized that actually fire was a commodity and it was saying, do kindness to those who do go against you. Give them fire. They carried the fire on top of their head so they're putting burning coals so that they could have a commodity and could have warmth in their own house. And that's what Jesus has told us to do. That's what we do. We love our enemies. Joseph did not retaliate because of his faith. And this speaks to the issues that were on his heart. He didn't have it on his heart to retaliate. He didn't have it on his heart. This speaks, though, to the issue of what we allow our hearts to harbor. Friends, if we allow anger and bitterness to reside in our hearts, then retaliation will be an option. But if we allow God to bring forgiveness into play, then these things get weeded out and our hearts are filled with love. And that's what God wants to do. Here's our last faith principle. Faith sees the bigger picture. Romans 12 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave, leave, it to God, leave the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Church, what's on your heart? that you need to release to God. What's on your heart? See, as we close out the message today, we come to our verse in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. Just listen to it. It's a capstone statement of Joseph's life. Now listen to it. It says, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Now, some of you are looking, scratching your head like, after all that in Joseph's life, that's the tribute that's given to Joseph? That's how he made the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11? Listen to it again. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning the bones. See, at first glance, this does seem like a strange tribute of faith. But if you look deeper, it is the capstone of his life. You see, Joseph knew that God had promised his forefather Abraham that God would bless his nation. He would make his nation great and that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. God had made a promise that there would be a promised land for his people. And Joseph knew that. Joseph knew that his home was in Egypt. It was the place that God had him for that moment. But his faith was 
was so strong that symbolically he wanted the people of Israel to know this isn't our home. So I want you to haul off my bones. I want you to take them to the promised land. I want you to go because God who promised is faithful. And he will always fulfill his promises. And it was a brilliant move of faith on Joseph's life. What a capstone. What an ending to a man who lived by faith. It brings us to ask the question, how will your faith journey end? Now hopefully, you and I have a few more chapters to write. You and I have a few more chapters to write in our life But here's what I know. I know that what God wants to do is he wants to be exalted in our life. And when he is exalted in our life, he wants to bring a joy and a fulfillment and a thriving and a prosperity in our life. And when I talk about prosperity, I'm not talking about the financial prosperity that could come. I'm talking about the prosperity of Psalm 1, verse 3. Remember it? You memorized it when you were a kid, possibly. Be like a tree planted by the streams of living water, which yields its fruit in its seasons, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. See, our altar call right now in this final song is simply this, that we would exalt God in our life and that we would have the joy of God in our life. But the problem is there are things that are obstacles to that joy being fulfilled in each and every one of our lives. Some of us are doing the things, are holding on to the things that Joseph was allowed allowed to go. Some of us are bitter. Some of us have made poor moral choices. Some of us are living in despair. Some of us have been tainted by power and pride. Some of us are harboring resentment and bitterness in our hearts. And the only way that we can have the joy and the fulfillment that God wants to do is surrender. It's surrender. It's always living our life through God and asking God because of his amazing grace and the shed blood of his son on the cross, that I can now be released from the chains. I'm free. Allow this song to be a song of release of whatever's on your heart that is an obstacle to that joy.